Because I find often with conflict, we fight more about how we fight. No, it's because you said it with that tone or it's because you walked out while I was talking to you. We fight so much more about the fighting process than we actually fight about the content. Hi everyone, Doug Kent here. Welcome to another episode of the Let's Talk Mental Health series, where we dive deeper into some of the most common psychological areas that can really challenge us with the added stress during this COVID-19 season. Today, I'm pleased to welcome clinical psychologist and trainer Tanya van Nevada back onto the show, this time to talk about family conflicts. Now, we all know that it's normal to disagree with one another from time to time. Occasional conflict is part of family life. However, with the added stresses of the COVID-19 season, conflict can become disruptive to the family, stressful and damaging to relationships. In worst case scenarios, people may become intentionally hurtful, aggressive or even violent. For the family system to work effectively, everyone has to stay involved, not only in the good times, but during the times of conflict as well. Today, Tanya offers us some excellent tips to help keep or re-establish the peace in your home. Stay tuned. Good morning, Tanya. How are you today? Hi, Doug. I'm fine, thanks. It's good to be here with you again today. Thanks very much. And uh, yes, uh, lovely to have you on the show again. Uh, Today, we're going to be picking up on family conflict. Can we just start with talking about what conflict actually is and is there a difference between positive and negative conflict? Sure, that's a good place to start. The thing I tell my clients, ultimately when we're engaging in conflict with our loved ones, the reason for doing that is so that we could feel closer together. The end goal is for us to feel more united, to know each other better. So so conflict can be a very positive and rewarding experience where I feel understood and I feel appreciated, etc. Unfortunately, the way that we engage in conflict, however, can be so harmful. Sometimes we forget that we're a team and we end up really pulling at the opposite ends of the, of the tug of war rope. The thing is that positive conflict and positive motives might not be experienced as such and conflict can actually be quite a negative experience because we engage in it in such a harmful way. We start to fight for me, the I in the story, and forget that we are a team. In this process, we want to defend our own points of view. We don't engage in empathy. We don't listen well. And as such, we really hurt each other through this process. So I would say that there are some conflicts that are worth fighting through. Those are particularly I would recommend with your close people and those conflicts are there to bring you closer together. Mm-hmm. And some conflicts are perhaps better left just untouched. Maybe some things cannot be changed and are actually not worth our time. So conflict can be both positive and negative. Tanya, the Bible urges us several times, in fact, to keep a tight rein on our tongues. Um, most of us have difficulty with controlling our words. And of course, our words can be tremendously harmful, particularly to people that we are most close to. Do you have any pointers in terms of how to control yourself in an emotional situation, particularly when things are becoming destructive, as you've just mentioned? Mm, Absolutely. The dilemma with our tongue and our emotions is 
that the emotional center of the brain, and I think we touched on this a bit in the previous recording, that if you think of the brain as a highway, the information first reaches the brain stem, the bottom of the brain, which like just checks that your temperature is regulated, your heart is beating, you're digesting your food, all those automatic things you don't have to think about. The next place the information reaches is your emotional center of the brain. We call it the limbic system. And then only lastly, the information reaches the front of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, which is where executive functions take place. So planning, reasoning, organization, concentration, etc. So when we get angry, we are triggered in our emotional system. Our limbic system is activated. And if we don't control that well, we can have an emotional hijacking taking place in our brain. And we let our tongues loose and we really climb into our perceived opponent. So to manage that in the moment, I would suggest literally counting to 10. It's so old school and everybody knows that, but when you understand why, it makes more sense. So if you think about that highway in your brain of where the information gets processed, to count to 10 gives the brain some time for the information to reach the front of the brain, which is where you can reason and like make logical, rational decisions. Counting to 10 helps to just keep some element of control of your anger. But my bigger intervention, I would say, would be before you get there, with your important person, it's important to have what I would call like a fight plan so that you can engage in fair fighting. So if you consider like the metaphor of boxing, so the sport of boxing have various rules. And the first rule is that you only fight in the boxing ring. You don't fight in the locker room. You wait until it's time to engage in the conflict. So for us with our partners and with our families, etc., we need to have a special space, a special boundary space, be it a time boundary, be it a venue boundary, a specific boxing ring that we can use. Examples of that could be that we don't fight in the bedroom because the bedroom is a space of peace. We'd rather fight at the dining room table. We don't fight in the man cave, because that's your territory, we fight in a neutral zone where we're both equal. We don't fight in front of the children or we don't fight after nine o'clock at night because then I'm no longer rational anyways. So I don't take responsibility for what I'm saying. Yes. So, you know, those boundaries in terms of time and space. But the second thing is to consider we all have hotspots when we engage in conflict, specific things that really trigger us. It causes that emotional hijack to just take place in the brain and you lose control and that's different for everybody the, the type of general patterns that I see are specific phrases perhaps phrases like oh but let's let's just divorce then or oh you just think I'm stupid or whatever there might be specific phrases that trigger you there might be specific non-verbal actions that trigger you like eye rolling or sighing or shrugging there might be specific behavior that triggers you so when somebody physically intimidates you perhaps not even intentionally and I've seen this quite a bit in males who are not violent by nature at all but because they are physically bigger than their woman the woman experienced them as intimidating just because of their sheer bulk they're not saying or doing anything but just if you stand and I'm sitting it's scary so there might be those kind of things that we need to be aware of what do I do to my person that 
gives them an emotional hijacking and what do they do to me? Because we're in this to draw closer together, we want to respect each other and we want to make sure we're not engaging in those things. It's pre-agreed rules that we won't engage in these illicit items, if you will. You know, in the boxing match, you only use your, your gloves. You don't use hand grenades and guns and knives and you fight according to the rules. The third thing around the boxing metaphor that we need to remember when we're engaging and designing our fight plan is that a boxing match is often not completed within one round. You need to engage in a conflict quite a few times and it's okay to take breaks. The important thing is that when we take breaks, it's a break that's well communicated. So one person might only be able to tolerate a two-minute break before re-engaging. They need to sort this thing out now. And somebody else needs maybe a two-day break so that they can go and think about it before they re-engage. So whenever we are taking breaks in our conflict situations, something might not be fully resolved, but we recognize that we are too emotional right now. We're not rational. We're hurting each other more than we are helping the process take a break and negotiate, come to some type of compromise about how long until we re-engage. Should you be stuck in that impasse, the one person wants to sort it out now and the other person wishes to withdraw for a longer period, it might be beneficial to re-engage shortly afterwards, but with the understanding that the short engager, if I could put it that way, let's call them the rhino, the person who storms in and wants to resolve the conflict right away. You might be able to then further listen to the rhino, but the porcupine, the person who wants to withdraw from the conflict, they might not be ready to respond. So to say, okay, I know you need me to come back in two minutes, so I'll be back in two minutes, but I won't have an answer yet. So I'll listen to the rest of what you want to say, and then we'll take another break until the porcupine is ready to respond. So to take turns, just like in the boxing match, you take rounds, you don't have to sort it all out immediately especially if you're emotional, because that will probably do more harm than good. Yes. And then the last thing, I know there are so many things here that I'm saying, but, you know, the last just little connection to the boxing metaphor is the importance of having a referee. I think for us as Christians to, to use the Holy Spirit as a referee, to be in tune with the Holy Spirit when we are engaging in conflict. Yes. And I find that really hard because I'm so absorbed in my own needs. It's hard to remember that. Jesus is my advocate and he is interceding for me and he is standing at my defense. I don't have to protect myself. I find that in conflict situations, it's so hard to really listen and really engage with what the other person is saying. I'm so often planning my own answer in my head as opposed to listening to what they are trying to say. In terms of having that referee, allowing ourselves to be submitted to the Holy Spirit so that we can really listen, can really love, speak the truth in love, not just speak the truth. And then sometimes we need to make that a bit more practical. It might mean having something like a timer on. It's your five minutes to talk and I won't interrupt you. And then it's my five minutes to talk until the buzzer goes and you're not allowed to interrupt me. Or maybe you need a talking stick, something I can hold on to when it's my turn. And if you hold it, then it's your turn and I'm not allowed to interrupt you. And then should it become so intense that you're unable to maintain and adhere to these rules that you have designed together, it can be very beneficial to have an objective third party part of the conflict, a mediator, 
respected, mature believer who is not going to gossip about you and who might be able to just facilitate this discussion to say, no, you keep quiet now, it's your turn to talk. Or a therapist or a psychologist, a trusted family member. Um, the idea with a third party is not, it's not their job to solve the problem. You're allowing them, you're giving them permission to facilitate the process. So help me to live by these rules that we have set out for ourselves. Help me to fight fair according to this fight plan that we have designed. To come back to your initial question, you were saying, you know, what can we do in the moment to control our tongue? Count to 10. Ideally, before that, have your rules of engagement, have your fight plan with your important people to say, this is what I need in order to engage in a truthful yet loving way. These are my hotspots. Don't talk to me after nine o'clock at night or whatever it might be. Can we meet each other halfway in that? Because I find often with conflict, we fight more about how we fight. No, It's because you said it with that tone or it's because you walked out while I was talking to you. We fight so much more about the fighting process than we actually fight about the content. It's not about the dishes. It's the fact that you shrugged at me and I felt like you weren't listening and you didn't understand me. I can live with the dishes, but I need you to understand me. So if we can get that right, I think the world would be a different place. Yes. The Bible urges us to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. Mm. And I think peacemaker implies a far more active role in keeping peace in relationships because I don't know about you, but in my experience, no relationships are smooth sailing or meaningful relationships anyway are smooth sailing. Absolutely. I was just reading again the other day that it doesn't matter whether you are the victim or you are the perpetrator, if I can put it that way, in terms of conflict. Regardless, we are called to be peacemakers. So if you know of a brother who has something against you, so you the perpetrator, you must go and make right. Or if you have something against your brother, so you you are the victim, go and make right before you bring your offering to the Lord. Being a peacemaker, it's not only for the perpetrator. As believers, we're all like Jesus was not the perpetrator. He was so innocent and did the peacemaking for us. He was definitely not a peacekeeper. If you think about the way he spoke to the Pharisees and he brought division often where he went. For us to follow in his example, where we are active peacemakers, I think it's very uncomfortable. It goes against the flesh. Yeah, absolutely right. You've mentioned hotspots and perhaps avoiding hotspots. Are there any other general sources of family conflict that perhaps we should be more aware of? And do we steer clear of those or how do we manage those sources? Research supports this as well in marriage. The the three main themes around conflict have to do with money, in-laws and sex. If you could maintain within your marriage an ongoing conversation on those topics, I think you're going to be doing well. One of the things that we often do is we think that because we sorted it out once before, it would be the same for the rest of forever. And that's not true. As we change, as our seasons change, our needs change, our responses to those things would also be different. So to keep those conversations going would be important. In terms of our families, I think especially now during lockdown, there has been a lot more conflict simply because we have been either more in each other's space because we're living together and there's no school and everybody's working from home. So getting on each other's nerves 
a lot. Or alternatively, because of lockdown, we are separated from our family and where we would have had like Sunday lunches together or regular holidays, catching up with one another. We are now so isolated and trying to communicate through social media or even with video conferencing, you know, like Zoom and Skype. I think there's still a lot that gets lost in translation. And we start comparing ourselves to everybody's photo reel of the highlights of their lives. And it makes us more irritable and more grumpy. We are more prone to conflict in times of stress because your brain is acting in more of an emotional response way. So to be aware of that and maintain that ongoing conversation. I find that so helpful, especially uh, in families with children, even as young as like primary school aged kids up to adolescents or working adults even, to have family conferences, to have a a tradition or a ritual in the family that says Sunday afternoon, um, one o'clock is our family check-in time. So what's happening in your life? What's happening this week? What's making you happy? What's making you sad? What's making you angry? Is there something we can do to help or something we can change to make your life different, better? It's awkward at the beginning, but when it becomes a ritual and something that's really predictable, it can be so helpful to air things sooner rather than later. This is also obviously applicable to people who live together like housemates, etc. Get honest about how you feel about the dishes being unwashed this week as opposed to three months later when you're below your top. So ongoing, honest conversation where we are not honest at the expense of love, but also we are not loving at the expense of honesty and truth. Being able to hold those two together, that I can stand up for myself and be honest about what's going on, but in such a way that I'm loving you in the way that I'm delivering this message. Okay, thank you. If we go one step further, and this relates to a question I had about family conflict, Uh, This particular family, and I'm going to talk in very general terms, obviously don't want anyone to be exposed uh, as a result of this question, but this particular family have two members that are at each other's throats quite often. And in a way, they hijack the whole family culture on regular occasion. They have apparently been for family therapy and the two particular members revert to their primeval behavior, negative destructive behavioral patterns. What do family members or the other family members do in that situation to try and get the family back again? When people act like children, they should be treated as such. (laughs) So when you are losing control of your more rational mind, I think the family has a right and perhaps even a responsibility to provide them with with consequences, to help them to train their brain, to help them to reason in a more logical way so that they can resolve their conflict, especially in those scenarios where they hijack the family culture. We're going out for a milkshake and it's going to be wonderful and now these two just like ruin it for the whole family to provide them with, with consequences to say, Next time we're going for milkshakes, you're not coming with because you can't behave. You can't treat each other well and you spoil the whole thing for all of us. Those kind of consequences. So obviously the consequences would be very family specific. 
but you need to let them know that their action is not okay. Should these family members be believers? Because now it's not just a conflict between the two parties. It's it's now that the rest of the family, let's say, for example, the mom and the daughter, just to make it easier, mom and the daughter are angry at the dad and the son. So the mom and the daughter, they need to be direct with a dad and the son to say, this is how your behavior towards each other is impacting us and say how you would like the behavior to change. The second time to take witnesses, you know, that's what the Bible says. You first address the issue with your brother, the second time with a witness and the third time with the elders. So that's where you get church leadership involved. People don't change overnight. I get that, but there needs to be some evidence of change and some, some evidence of intent to change mm. that I would like to see from my family members. I'm not just going to keep on loving you because that's what I'm supposed to do. My love means nothing if I'm not also speaking the truth. There's this really helpful formula that I find helps me to communicate difficult things in a, an assertive but not attacking way. It doesn't make the person feel defensive. The first step is to start off by saying how I feel. The good news about that is nobody can argue about how I feel. So I can say, I feel so embarrassed, or I feel really irritated, or I feel hurt, or I feel disappointed, whatever it is, um, the emotional component. By sharing your emotional component, you're making yourself a bit more vulnerable. And that is why the other person doesn't feel as defensive and like you're attacking them. Mm -hmm. the, the trick with saying that I feel, you must remember to say a feeling word as opposed to an opinion. So to say that I feel that you are a lazy slob is not a feeling, that is an opinion. <laughs> so you want to really insert like your, your feeling there, your emotion. The second step is to describe the wing. So I feel embarrassed when we go out and you and dad start raising your voices at each other while we are in public, like it happened the other day at the Wimpy. So you try to make it as specific as possible in terms of time, in terms of place, in terms of behavior. Again, here, you need to be very, very factual. By being factual, you reduce further risk of conflict because everybody can agree that that happened. If I say that I felt embarrassed when you made a fool of me when we went out, that's a bit vague because what does that actually mean? I can say, no, I didn't make a fool of you. It wasn't that bad, etc. You want to reduce conflict by being very specific about the facts. Um, so observable behavior. If there was a fly on the wall, what would that fly be reporting? The fly would say that you sighed. The fly would say that you rolled your eyes. The fly would say that you spoke louder than usual. The fly would say that you interrupted, etc. So I feel when. The third step is because. So here I get to insert my reasoning, my opinion. Why do I feel this way when you behave in such a way? So this because thing, everybody is allowed to have their own opinions and we need to try and respect people's opinions, but we do not have to agree with their opinions. So this is the first point where potential conflict could erupt. But hopefully by making yourself vulnerable at the start, the person would be more inclined to be empathetic and try to put themselves in your shoes, understanding your reasoning. The next step is to then share what you need from this person. 
this is not a conversation you would have when you want somebody to pass the salt. <laughs> this is not a conversation you would have with somebody who's just passing through your life, like an attendant or something like that. These are with your close people. The, the point of this formula is to make you closer at the end of it. So just a quick recap, we started with how I feel, when, you know, what are the specific behaviors and things that triggers it? I feel when, because, my reasons for it. And then the fourth step is I need. I'm thinking about this, the story that you shared, specific family members are really volatile towards each other. They're engaging in conflict a lot and it's making uncomfortable for the rest of the family. I'm wondering what I might need. Maybe I need... I need you to sort your conflict out in a civilized way. I need to know that you're going to reconcile eventually. I need you to sort it out in private. Like if you're going to behave like animals, then don't do it in front of me. What is it that you need? Maybe it's that you need peace in the home. Maybe it's that you need to feel heard. Like, can you just understand how your behavior is making me feel? What do you need? People are not responsible for fulfilling our needs. We need to take our needs to Jesus. But I think Jesus uses people and uses community to meet those needs. So to say to the family or to whoever you're engaging with conflict with, your close people, say, I need X, Y, and Z. And to be real about that, but at the same time, not just like loading it onto them. You know that this is something you need to take to Jesus and trust Jesus to work out in your heart. Once you've shared your need, I really urge you to not stop the conversation there because then you're just dumping your problems on somebody else. Yes. You want to come up with some solutions, which is why the next step is I suggest. And to come up with a few solutions, it might be solutions to either address your feeling that you mentioned at the start, you know, can you give me a hug or, um, you know, can you... I don't know, um, make me a cup of tea. <laughs> what is it? Maybe something to address the feeling. Maybe it's something to address the because you said you think that it's unfair or, or whatever. You need that person to own up to it. So some suggestions around that. Maybe it's the deeper stuff, the need to be understood. So I suggest we make a date on Friday or on Saturday, either for supper or for lunch, where we can go out, just the two of us, and we can talk about stuff whatever the suggestions are to address those things that you have brought up and more than one so that it's not as prescriptive. I have found that when I've provided only one suggestion, it has made the listener almost rebel against it because I'm telling them what to do. So rather come up with a few options so that they can choose. And it also shows that you've really thought about it. You've really thought about what would make a difference, not just being prescriptive and adding something else to the list. You're saying, we can do this differently. We can make it better. And there are many ways we can do this. I'm sure one of these or something I might not have thought of yet could work for both of us. In the situation, when you are talking about your needs and your suggestions, is it worth the family documenting these so that they can go back to those? I think that is a wonderful idea, especially because it enables a bit more accountability Right. And you can then reinforce the consequences better. So to apply it to the family scenario, to say, I feel embarrassed when you behave in such a way in public because I think you are old enough to be able to and mature enough to handle it in a different way. I need you to consider how we feel when you're acting in this way. I suggest 
that in the future, should you behave in this way, these are the consequences. Or I suggest that you write an essay to prove to me that you do understand how we feel. Or I suggest, you know, you come up with all those different suggestions. Um, And then specifically to document the, the things that you agree on in the end. Because the last step is to say, what do you think? You're not just a Nazi coming in, like saying, this is how it's going to be. You are engaging in two-way communication to say, I need your feedback. This isn't all about me. This is about us. This is about us being close together. So what do you think? Yeah, so that's that's a communication strategy that might be helpful. And it's applicable to a wide range of scenarios, not just the, the family conflict that we've described here. It's been invaluable for me and many, many people in my practice. Okay, great. Well, that's good advice. Thank you, Tanya. One more question. It seems to me that some people are far more verbal than other people. So when you get into a situation of verbal conflict, the person who is better with expressing themselves often has a lot more to say and Another person who perhaps can't express themselves so well verbally is kind of shut out. Is there any way, any alternative way that you can allow that particular person to communicate or do they just choose the best form of communication? Could they write a letter to their partner, for instance, if they felt it was easier for them? Mm. Yeah, communication has to do with so much more than what we say. Communication has to do with Firstly, our body language, obviously, as well. But it's also communicated in music, in the written word, like you said, in letters, in in movement. All of these things communicate. So our words is just one of the ways that we communicate. So to find a way to demonstrate and share what we are feeling and finding a way that that we feel comfortable with is important. But it's also important to find a way to grow and to stretch so that I can understand somebody using a different medium to me. So maybe my medium is maybe through my movement. So maybe I'm a bit more passive aggressive. So somebody will ask me, are you, are you okay? And, or ask me what's wrong. And I say, no, I'm fine. And I bang the doors and I kick the door and I, you know, whatever. All of that behavior, not okay behavior. That might be a way of communicating how I'm feeling. And the other person might understand that, you know, they get the message. So on the one hand, I want to say absolutely find what makes you feel comfortable. At the same point, I want to say grow your communication so it can also be something that somebody else would understand. Usually people speak more and talk more, especially if they're saying the same thing over and over again, because they do not feel heard and understood. So to get that person to keep quiet, <laughs> you need them to feel like, I get you, you are not crazy. Basic listening skills would say, we have two ears and one mouth, so we need to listen twice as much as we speak. And then when we do listen, to listen non-verbally, so we look interested, to reflect what somebody is saying. So you, you paraphrase what they're saying. It's a way of demonstrating like, I'm with you, I hear what you're saying, etc. And also to check the accuracy of what you understand. So when I say, I like cats, it could be quite vague because do I mean I like domestic cats? Do I like my cats? Do I like the cat family? Do I like the musical cats? In reflection, it offers you an opportunity to double check the accuracy of what you understand. Right. So when you say you like cats, you mean the musical. Yes, you know me so well. I love the musical cats. You need to check the accuracy. 
Yes. So it's nonverbal reflection, then summarizing. So today I have definitely been talking like in essays as opposed to paragraphs. <laughs> so for a listener to then to help them to feel less overwhelmed and possibly even for the speaker to feel less overwhelmed to summarize what they're saying. So let me see if I've got all that. You said this and there was this thing and there was this thing and there was this thing. What you also want to do as a listener is you want to not just listen to the facts, but also listen for the feelings. And you can't say what somebody else is feeling, but you can check. When you said this thing, you had this frown on your face and I thought, I wonder if you feel worried. So you're not saying you are worried. You are saying, you're checking. You're summarizing and just checking in. Do I get you? The next step that you want to do is you want to validate and empathize. I can guarantee that the person will feel held, they will feel understood when you describe that I get what you are feeling. That must be so hard. That must be so stressful. If I was in your shoes, I would also freak out, whatever it is. You want to empathize and validate what they're feeling. And only after that, because then the person's contained. They now trust you. They feel like you get it. Only then do you really earn the privilege of responding with your own stuff. And if you think about all those steps, so often we are quick to respond, but we haven't actually really listened. We haven't really heard what the other person is saying. So in terms of people who speak a lot versus people who do not speak a lot, the people who do not speak a lot is because they do not feel heard. They do not feel like they have a space to share. They might be shyer or more uncomfortable trying to find words to describe how they're feeling, etc. And they might have been hurt in the past when they did share. So now they just shut down. It's easier. And we tend to attract each other. The talkers are often with the non-talkers because it's kind of comfortable. I'm familiar with talking a lot and I'm so grateful the other person keeps quiet. So I have a lot of talking space and vice versa. But in reality, we're actually not meeting each other's needs because I'm talking and talking and talking, but am I really being heard? And the person's staying quiet, 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 but am I feeling safe? Am I feeling understood? Mm -hmm. So both people have the same needs and it's listening is hard work. Listening is really hard work. Yes, yeah, so that's a very active process. And, and I think a real skill that so many of us need to develop further. Many of us are so good at talking and expressing our opinions, but we're really not good at listening, are we? Absolutely. And if we could listen, I think if we understood each other at the start, so much conflict would be avoided because often we're saying the same thing or a similar thing. And when I'm able to empathize, I don't need to defend my own position as much. I don't hate or I'm not as annoyed by the other person because I get it. So it makes more sense. It de-escalates my response immediately. So I'm able to be more logical and rational in my responses. I can be loving and truthful at the same time. I think that's very important advice. Uh, The reality, Tanya, in this country is that we have, and we discussed at last session, uh, so much violence, including gender-based violence. And this is perhaps more for the ladies than the gents. How do you best handle a situation where you think it may turn violent at any time? In other words, you've perhaps failed to handle the emotions. The emotions are spinning out of control to the extent that uh, it could become a dangerous situation. What do you do in that situation to avoid 
it going that last step, which can result, of course, in, in tragedy. Hmm. I wish nobody ever found himself in that position, but unfortunately it does happen. I think my tips would be from a psychological perspective. You know, I'm sure there are lots of things you can also do in terms of self-defense, like more physically to protect yourself. As a psychologist, as part of my training, we also had to work with unpredictable clients, especially when they're really, really ill. And in those circumstances, part of our training said that for us to always be closest to the door so that you can get out as quickly as possible, get away as quickly as possible. So be aware that you're not stuck in a corner. Slowly move towards the door, towards the open space so that you can run if you need to, just from a very practical point of view. But from more of the like the mind game point of view or the psychology point of view, yeah, it, it really does depend on different circumstances. But I would maybe, if I can't run away, I would try to de-escalate the other person's feelings. And the way that I do that is for me to remain calm. Mm-hmm. So for me to remain calm, it might feel like you're freaking out on the inside and that's okay. Listen to your guts. You know, the Holy Spirit is a really good prompt at telling us when we are unsafe as well. So listen to your gut, try to get to safety. If you're unable to do that, remain calm on the outside. You want to try and validate and empathize with what that person is saying. And they might be completely irrational. If it's crazy talk to say, sure, you're saying many interesting things right now. Help me to understand. Can you explain that to me a bit more? You know, those kind of terms to try and make that person feel more understood and validated in that moment. Tanya, thanks for all of that. Uh, one of the things that I want to touch on before we end this conversation is when conflict becomes perhaps a form of human cruelty, what are the signs of abuse taking place? In other words, it's, it's moved beyond normal conflict and there's now something else going on here. So what we're looking for in abuse is we're looking for a pattern. And like you say so correctly is that um, not all abuse is physical it's you don't have to be hit in order to be abused it can be very emotional financial even spiritual abuse takes place so what you're looking for is you're looking for a pattern of behavior where that person typically what i'm seeing especially with emotional abuse verbal abuse is where the perpetrator constantly makes me feel like i'm crazy the, the common arguments you would have are arguments like, no, I never said that. It's like you made that up or it's all in your head. My behavior is not that bad. Those are the kind of things. So you really start doubting yourself in those circumstances. It's valuable to have an outside perspective because usually this is a person that you really, really love. And it's hard to see that this person is treating you in a firstly ungodly way but also a very inhumane way. So it's hard to see those things and it takes an outside um, person to identify it very often. In relationships, the typical kind of relationships that I see is in a marriage where the one spouse emotionally abuses the other. It takes a lot to actually get out of that relationship. And I think for us as a church, where we as a body of believers can see a member is suffering. We want to help and we want to rescue them. And we do have a role to play in that, but we can't do it on that person's behalf. They do need to choose to do that for themselves. It's a, it's a process of saying, 
I do need help. I do want to change. I do want to get free. And also the process of saying, I believe God has more for the perpetrator than he's, he or she is currently living in. So we need help to get that happening. Then we come in. We can't swoop in and save the day without that kind of permission. As a body, for us to say, sure, uh, my my brother, my sister, I can see this thing happening in your life. When this person said X, Y, and Z to you, I felt angry on your behalf or I felt hurt on your behalf. Like, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And you might find that the victim responds out of a place of, oh, no, man, that's nothing. Or, no, man, it's not such a big deal. If you're having those conversations often, it really needs to raise red flags for us as a community and and also for the person who is stuck in that abusive situation. But like I said, sometimes when you're stuck in the abuse itself, you, you can't always see it. So that person needs a lot of love, a lot of prayer. And you want to really trust God to start rebuilding that person's sense of self, a healthy image made in the image of God where who does God say you are? Does God talk to you that way? Yeah, it's a very complicated area. But just to know, like, if there's anybody listening to this today that finds themselves in a situation like this, you're not alone. And I think often in the church, there is so much about you must honor your husband and you must honor your parents. And there is that very important thing that we can twist it and it becomes a theology that was not meant to be. Yeah, if you're there today, there are many who have been here before you and there will unfortunately be many after you. But Jesus can make a difference and Jesus can help you to live in real freedom. There have been circumstances where couples have fully reunited and there have been times where part of the couple might not have been as teachable or, you know, things just couldn't work out. Jesus is bigger than all of that. So turn to Jesus for your healing. And um, yeah, I just really want to encourage people who are listening to, to take heart and to take action. This isn't something you can get free of on your own. You need Jesus, you need the body, and possibly even professional help to um, to get you through that. Yes, yeah. I think the important thing is, as you mentioned right at the beginning, people have to make a choice about moving forward. As, yeah. as difficult as that choice perhaps is, uh, yes. you know, they've got to decide that they will not be stuck in an abusive relationship anymore and that they will do something constructive to try and resolve the situation. Exactly, yeah. yes. Tanya, thank you so much for your time both uh, today and in our first session. Uh, that's all we've got time for, and I think we're just scratching the surface on such an important topic. Do you have anything online or anything that you can offer them to look at? Uh, can they contact you? 100%. I do have quite a few resources on my website, specifically around engaging rules of engagement. I did a little mini series on my blogs, rules of engagement about how to create your fight plan, how to use those I statements, how to make requests, etc. So there is a lot of resources on my blog. And yeah, you're welcome to contact me, especially if you're trying to exit an abusive relationship or you're engaging in a conflict relationship at work or, you know, wherever. Um, you're welcome to contact me should I be unable to assist. I work with a variety of great colleagues in the area who would be happy to help as well. There is help available. I think that's the most important thing to remember. Conflict doesn't have to be 
damaging and dangerous and scary. It can be something really healthy to bring us closer together. Great. Well, I'll put those contact details then on the show notes uh, below the, the podcast. And uh, thank you again, Tanya. It's been a real privilege to talk to you. Thanks, Doug. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the show. Remember that this podcast is not therapy, so it's not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any mental health disorder. Always seek the guidance of your doctor, psychologist, or other qualified health professional with any questions you may have regarding your mental health or a medical condition. All content and media in this series are created and published online for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice and should not be relied on as personal health advice. Any external links provided to other websites or educational material are followed at your own risk.